Blog Talk Radio. Joining us on Three Women, Three Ways, with a show that tackles some pretty tough topics. And I think today's topic is one of the toughest because we're talking about children and the bad things that happen to children as they're growing up and how that impacts them throughout their lives. With me, I have uh, Jane Stevens. Jane is founder and publisher of uh, ACES High Connection Network that focuses on research about adverse childhood experiences and implementing trauma-informed and resilience-building practices based upon that research. Joining us as well is author of the ACES study. Co- um, I, um, I, you are, I guess, basically called the co-principal investigator, Dr. Vincent Felitti. Welcome, Jane and Vincent. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Great. You know, when I read this study, or I, you know, parts of it and synopsis of it, I thought, gosh, it has been around for nearly 20 years. Why is this just not gospel at this point? And so I'm going to ask you to to address that question as we go along. But to start out with, some of our listeners might not be aware of the ACEs study. Vincent, could you tell us what this study is and how it came about? Yeah, the ACE study really had its origins in the early to mid-80s when uh, in the Department of Preventive Medicine that I was running at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego, we um, introduced an obesity program using a then new technology of supplemented absolute fasting, which allows one to take a person's weight down about 300 pounds in one year. And we were doing that, and uh, it was an extraordinary thing to see. Uh, And then we realized that we had some unusual problems, namely uh, very high dropout rates limited exclusively to people who successfully were losing weight, and then seeing people who had lost 150, 200, 250, 300 pounds precipitously regaining all of that weight at an extraordinary rate. And it was in the course of exploring what the hell is going on here um, that uh, uh, we stumbled first into the issue of childhood sexual abuse and then into many other issues of childhood abuse uh, and growing up in massively dysfunctional households. This was so common, it was really quite difficult to accept it. I mean, I kept thinking, uh, you know, this, this can't be. Every other person I'm asking is acknowledging a history of childhood sexual abuse. You know, people would know if this were true. Somebody would have told me, well, (laughs) wasn't that what medical school was for, et cetera. And um, slowly I came to realize that this really was true, Uh, you know, confirming this with sheriff's departments in Mississippi and relatives and so on, uh, and that nobody wanted to hear about it. And I presented the findings uh, at a national obesity meeting in Atlanta in 1990, was attacked by the audience. Uh, Somebody under the guise of asking a question made the pronouncement that I really needed to understand 
that these statements by patients were basically fabrications to provide a cover explanation for failed lives. And wow. um, that was a, <laughs> a really interesting comment. Um, and uh, there was a, a dinner meeting for speakers that night, and, and seated next to me was someone from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. And he said, look, you know, if what you're saying is true, it, it's got enormous importance for the country as well as the practice of medicine. But no one's going to believe your 286 cases, no matter how well you studied them. What we need is a large epidemiologically sound study with thousands of people in it and from a general population, not some group that you've managed to accumulate somehow. And uh, we had a very unusual setting here in San Diego uh, where we uh, had a division in the department uh, uh, the division being health appraisal or called health appraisal, where we were supplying unusually comprehensive medical evaluation to 58,000 adults a year in one setting. It was the largest operation of its type, certainly in the country, probably in the Western world. Um, and uh, so, so it became, you know, clear that this would be the setting and ultimately, we uh, spent the next couple of years uh, planning how to ask 26,000 people coming through for comprehensive medical evaluation if they would help us understand more how life experiences in childhood might affect adult health many decades later. And that was the basis for the ACE study. Uh, which involved 17,500 adults who agreed to help us. Uh, and then we followed that. Well, first, a retrospective analysis, what was their current health status at average age 57 compared to what had happened to them in childhood, you know, roughly 40, 50 years earlier. And then we followed them for the next 20 years to see what was going to happen. Uh, and that uh, was the basis of the A study, a, a major study of of, uh, of seventeen thousand three hundred and thirty seven middle aged middle class adults. Wow, you did a twenty year longitudinal study. That that yes. that's huge. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Um, difficult. To, you know, I often hear people criticize studies, saying, "Oh, it's just a little thing," and and, and you know, they, they study so they look at somebody for a brief period, and then they make conclusions, and you can't trust studies. It would seem to me that if you're going to trust any study, a 20-year study <laughs> would definitely <laughs> have validity. Half thousand. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. Um, Okay, and so, Jane, I'm kind of ignoring you for a moment, but I'm going to get to you. I do want to just lay down our background, though. What were the conclusions of that study? Well, uh, A, that uh, the ten categories of adverse childhood experience that we were following were remarkably common, were overwhelmingly not recognized, uh, and had profound effects a half century later in terms of people's emotional states, social function or malfunction, uh, biomedical disease, and premature death. Wow. So, wow. Um, <laughs> so you said 10 categories. What are yes. those 10 categories? 
but we we picked the ten most common categories that we were seeing in our obesity program. They're not the only ten in the world. If if we had a population, you know, that was heavily immigrant laden from some war torn part of the earth, there might been others, some other categories, but the ten in a clearly middle class, seventy four percent had been to college. Um, um, middle-aged, uh, almost exactly half men, half women, 80% white, including Hispanic, 10% black, 10% Asian population. The 10 most common were three categories of abuse, <clears throat> major physical abuse, I don't mean spanking, I mean serious beating with fists, sticks, and other objects, major emotional abuse, basically recurrent humiliation, uh, contact sexual abuse, that was where we started, uh, and, and that was so common that, that that was really initially, it took me many months to accept that that was real contact sexual abuse. Two categories of neglect, major physical neglect, major emotional neglect. Five categories of major household dysfunction. Growing up in a house without both biological parents, growing up in a house where one of the members of your household was an alcoholic or a drug user, growing up in a house where a mother was beaten, growing up in a house where one of the members of your household was imprisoned during your childhood or adolescence, and um, what was the tenth category? Um, 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 um. Oh, growing up in a house where, where someone was chronically depressed, uh, chronically anxious, suicidal, or in the state hospital, um, you know, basically where someone was mentally ill. So those those were the ten categories. Okay, and I just checked off about four of those, and yet I'm functional. I'm doing fine. Okay. What? <laughs> um, and I'm... I, I, told you before the show that I'm going to play devil's advocate, and I am. When I was growing up 110 years ago, if a Uh child saw something or was experiencing something that wasn't good, the thought was, oh, he'll just get over it. Children are resilient. Uh, I remember in particular when I was in school, one of the children in my class saw her parent kill herself. And the thinking was at that time, well, you just don't talk about it. You give her a little thing, a little pep talk, and she'll get over it because children will outgrow these things. Yeah, that was kind and, of an and, assumption. And, and that's code for we will thus teach the kid not to talk about it and not to inconvenience us with these ugly events. And, ah, and the okay. person involved ends up paying a high price from that, but it will be overwhelmingly unrecognized. And It'll be more comfortable price. for everybody around her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Huh, that's interesting. Okay, but my point is is that um, just because you experience this doesn't necessarily mean that your life is going to be horrible, a failure, early death, or whatever, does it? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but it certainly markedly increases the likelihood of that. Okay, and it, all right. And, and it carries out that increase, it affects that increase in a dose-proportionate manner. We, we studied ten categories of adverse life experience in childhood, and what, what we uh, did was create a scoring system, the ACE score, which was the sum total of the number of categories, not events, but categories. 
And so there was clearly a very strong dose-response effect between the number of categories and the likelihood of various outcomes. For instance, as, as I as I recall, the uh, for a person with a so-called A score of six who had experienced any six of the categories, interestingly, they were essentially co-equal in destructiveness, which again was a surprise. Um, the likelihood of that person uh, attempting suicide at some point later in life is increased between 3,100 and 5,000 percent over the likelihood of a person experience none of those ten categories. In I mean, these are, these, you know, I, I remember epidemiologists at the CDC telling me these were numbers of a magnitude that they saw once in a career. You know, you think the latest cancer scare of the week in the newspaper, something increases prostate or breast cancer by 30%, and everyone goes nuts. And here we're talking 3,100 to 5,000%. Wow. Wow. What about suicide? I, was that included under your fourth category of depression or mental illness? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, the categories are pretty pretty sweeping. I mean, these are big things. And you're telling me how prevalent were some of these big things? I mean, well, how, I, I... Yeah, in, in a clearly middle-class population, you know, 74% having been to college is a handy handy index to that. Um, in a clearly middle-class, middle-aged population, 28% of the women acknowledged a history of contact sexual abuse, not somebody flashing a kid, but contact. And 16% of the men acknowledged that. Wow. Wow. Um, you, and, what you were talking can, about... Go ahead, Jane. I was going to say, yeah, if I can interrupt, um, the uh, subsequently there have been um, ACE surveys done in 32 states and the District of Columbia, and their results are um, essentially the same. Yeah, and, and basically wow. the same in Europe. The World Health Organization has been using the ACE questionnaire annually with 20 European countries and eight Asian countries, including China, and they're essentially turning up the same thing. We like to think that children are a wonderful resource, that we protect them, that we're doing everything that we can for our children. I can't tell you how many uh, young parents I encounter of school-aged children who think that they're, uh, they're bending over backwards and making themselves crazy, trying to make sure that their children have the best of schools and the best programs and the best ex uh, activities and great nutrition. Was this, is this still going on today? That is what you're saying. Oh yeah, sure. And 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 we had enough people in the study of enough different ages. The average age was 57, but the range was 26 to 94 that we were able to study the prevalence of uh, a score across the 20th century and uh, essentially it's been constant. You know, we we talk more about things publicly now. So, mm -hmm. so they might seem more constant, but, but in fact, when we measured it, uh, the A score was basically constant, regardless of where in the 20th century one might have been born. Wow. Really dramatic numbers, really sweeping uh, oh, yeah. uh, numbers. 
why has it taken so many years for people to really grasp this and really start to talk about doing something about it? Yeah, well, that's obviously a very key question. Um, I, I think it probably starts with the fact, you know, you know A, I, I believe there are many answers to that. Um, uh, but I think it probably starts with the fact that we have all very effectively been taught as children that there are certain things that nice people don't talk about and, my God, surely don't ask about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I can I, I see that very clearly. When you were looking at your numbers, when you were looking at the distribution of these numbers, um, you mentioned a 28 percent of people reported sexual contact as children, an uh, intensive or an extreme sexual women, contact yeah. as children of women. Yeah. Did any has any previous study, to your knowledge, indicated how high that number would be? No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, there there may be, but it would have been a, a small-scale study. Uh, the unusual advantage we had was, was the huge population base at Kaiser Permanente. Yeah, and yeah. I have well, I have seen some other um, studies that were definitely smaller, but uh, consistent with that number. Wow. You know, uh, uh, about a year or so ago, we had Dr. Lynn Sacco on the show. She wrote the book Unspeakable, uh, History of Father-Daughter Incest in America. Sure. And she uh, alluded to this very high statistic, but that it was covered up for so long because, you know, basically nobody believed anyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, I had some difficulty believing this when I started hearing it from patients. Incest, in fact, is common. I used to think, you know, that it exists, but, I mean, it's extremely rare. Well, of course, to know what its prevalence is, you'd have to routinely ask everyone and to do so in a manner that was likely to, you know, produce an open answer. Yeah. And I think what the ACE study really... Uh, sorry, uh, say what the ACE study showed uh, so clearly was that um, the things that we don't talk about and that we think can't possibly be occurring are pretty regularly, and then the things that we have come to um, regard as normal, you know, like divorce and living with someone who's an alcoholic or living with someone who's clinically depressed actually do damage. And yet, I, I think what's, what, what struck me so much when you were talking about some of the outcomes that you noticed was the physical health as well. I mean, you could, you've got oh, yeah. to kind of figure that if a, if a child lives through something devastating, that there's probably going to be some psychological issues that they're going to have to deal with. But what about this physical fallout that you were talking about? Well, that's a very good point that you bring up. And, and, and the question is, how does that occur? Uh, some of the answer is easy to understand when you think about otherwise unthinkable things. Uh, you know, people certainly feel bad, depressed, chronically anxious as a result of these experiences and the various coping mechanisms <clears throat> that are put in place, eating, you know, sit down, have something to eat, you'll feel better. Sit down, have a drink, relax, yeah, have, have a smoke, you know, sit down, relax. Etc. Buying antidepressants on the street. That's interesting. No one's familiar with that. Uh, but of course, the first 
successful prescription antidepressant introduced for sale in the United States in 1940 by Burroughs Welcome and Company was methamphetamine. And that maintained the number one position roughly for the next 15 years. And so on the street in impure form, an unknown dose, it's known as crystal meth, you know. But isn't that dangerous? Well, you know, if you don't if you don't have a basis for understanding dosage, yes, then any medication is potentially dangerous. You take 30 aspirin instead of two, you've taken a suicidal dose. You know, you decide to double your digitalis to get a stronger effect from it, you'll be dead in 10 days. Wow. Wow. So the idea that, you know, that street drugs are being purchased for the antidepressant effect, that's that's concealed. Yeah. It's a lot easier to say to somebody, you know, my kid's buying that damn crystal meth because there's a dealer on the next block than it is to say my kid's buying antidepressants on the street. Yeah. One of the things that I want to really ask you about is... Yeah. Well, and and Jane, I think in your, in one of your articles that I read, you were talking about how we deal, you know, we see children with problems and we immediately want to give them ADHD medication. We want to give them, you know, medication to deal with that surface problem without really searching it. And I want to ask you more about that, but first I've been pretty negligent because I have not given out our phone number. We can take calls from folks. The chat room is open if you want to um, post a question for either Jane or Vincent. Uh, The call-in number is 646-378-0430. And we do have a caller on the line who's been very patient and waiting for us. So if I could go to um, Karen, are you there? Oops. Yes, Maybe I have she'd... to unmute oh. my <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've kept you waiting. Uh, uh, on the line with us is Dr. Karen Huffer, who's been on the show a couple of times. And Karen, do you have a question for uh, Dr. Flitty or for Jane Stevens? Uh, yes, uh, actually for both. Uh, because my area is working with these children <clears throat> and families once they get in the court. And what I'm finding is they get virtually nobody listens to these children. They have no place to turn. If they go to a therapist, the ter- therapist gets in trouble for bringing the information into the court. Uh, the parents get in trouble. It, we just are keeping these children in an invisible, no matter how old they are, if they're grown, they're invisible. Uh, I think partly because the courts don't know how to deal with it. it. These are very hard things to deal with. And I think that a lot of times it's just easier to brush it off or punish the people, accuse them of lying. Jane, do you want to comment on that? Sure. There actually are some courts now that uh, there's there's quite a movement within the court community, the criminal justice and civil uh, justice community, to educate judges about um, ACE science and um, and there's a, a really interesting uh, uh, courts court um, program called Safe Babies Courts. And what they do is uh, these judges are no 
uh, a lot about the ACE study and the neurobiology of toxic stress and and how toxic stress affects the short and long-term health and and also uh, recognizes how it's passed on from generation to generation, that if parents have ACEs, they're going to, if there's no intervention, they'll pass them on to their children. So what the Safe Babies Courts do is when there's a, a kid under three who um, has been um, um, integrated into the child welfare system because of something that has or come to the attention of the child welfare system, they understand that that's a symptom of the family uh, that's troubled. And so what they'll do is they provide complete wraparound services for the family and the extended family, if the extended family lives with the the core family. And that means um, um, uh, making sure that, and, and including the siblings of this child. So they're doing everything to get the family back up on its feet. So it's, it's job, help with job, housing, food, transportation, uh, substance abuse, counseling, um, making sure there's family counseling, individual counseling, anything that 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 family needs, they'll do. And the amazing thing about this is why I was saying um, about how understanding this will help solve some of our most intractable problems. They've actually been around long enough that uh, in a survey a year after the child who's reported um, that starts this to the uh, system um, that started the process a year after they've been involved or after they finished their whole process of getting the family back up on, on its feet, 99% of these kids suffer no further abuse. Where is this? That's remarkable. Yeah. So Safe Babies Courts was uh, zero to three uh, is, the, is a national organization that that has a lot of resources and is focused on um, – uh, child maltreatment prevention and, and helping families because they know if, uh, if, a, if a child is, is showing symptoms, that means that the whole family's in trouble. So they're very oriented to, to helping children and families, and they're the ones that were behind this. So Safe Babies Courts are in several states now, and uh, last I talked with them, I think they were starting another round of about a dozen Safe Babies Courts. Um, it's it's just scratching the surface. I think probably maybe one or two percent of family courts now are safe babies courts, which is not much, but it's certainly a start. And the the results are so um, remarkable that that there's been quite a push. The other way that there's actually a um, an organization in Florida that is training judges about ACEs science so that they can begin integrating into their courts, whether it's veterans courts or drug courts or youth courts, um, um, uh, juvenile justice courts, there's a movement in that uh, in those arenas as well. And I think that the justice system will come to the conclusion, like um, which has been shown by, uh, by Dr. Folletti's work, that um, anybody who ends up in, in the justice system probably has um, some history of ACEs. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Good does that, point. Thank that, you. Does that answer your question, Karen? Yes, thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Karen, and uh, stay with mm-hmm. us in case you have another question, okay? I will. 
Great. Um, we have one other caller on the line. I'm going to go ahead and take that, and then we're going to get back on track with um, some of our, our questions. So um, let me go to our next caller. Um, caller, our is this me, Connie Valentine? Yes, Connie. Are you there? Yes. Hi, yes. Oh, thank you for joining us, Connie. I wasn't sure if you were going to make it. Um, Connie is, uh, uh, I, I guess I will call you a friend of the show. Is that fair? I would Connie say that's Valentine fair, yeah. is, is co founder of California Protective Parents Association, and she's also founding mothers, uh, a mother of mothers of lost children. So she knows whereof she speaks when we talk about the courts situation. Um, Connie, are you joining us or did you have a question? Well, I'm joining you for just a short moment. Um, I ended up with something else I had to do that was important today, So, but I just wanted to hardly endorse whatever Jane Stevens has to say because okay. she has <laughs> <in> charge. <laughs> okay. And Dr. Folletti right. is my hero forever. Um, uh, it explained to me great. finally what what my whole life was about once he you know, once the A study came out and I, I realized that, you know, it wasn't anything wasn't something wrong with me. It's something that happened to me. Yeah. I find that as I get older and as I get more information, I realize that some of the stuff that I lived through as a child, um, wasn't typical, wasn't good and um it it kinda helps me explain things about my life, and then helps me try to reshape it. And before the end of the show, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Floody, about that, and uh, Jane as well. Um, but for now, um, Connie, I'm going to uh, let you hang on there if you want. If you need to go, we understand. But meanwhile, I want to get back. Uh, and, and as long as you're there, Connie, I want to do a whole separate show, Jane as well, on the safe babies and the courts and what this study means specifically for the courts. So let's talk. <laughs> let's talk Meanwhile, offline. Yeah. I am 100% yeah. with you on that. Um, okay, great. So um, thank you for doing this show, Heather. This is fabulous. Well, you know, this is how we get the information out there. And, um, you know, and, and you know, I, I, little, little shameless self-promotion here. I was in traditional radio for 15 years, and you can do the best show in the world, and as soon as it's done, it's done, and nobody hears it again. The wonderful thing about blog radio is that it is there forever. It's almost like writing a book. Every now and then I'll look at my numbers and I'll see that suddenly 400 people listen to a show from two years ago. You know, And it's, it's gratifying to know that that wonderful information is out there and people can pick it up no matter when they need it. So um, I'm a real advocate of this type of communication. So enough shameless promotion. Let's get back to the ACE study. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Well, I'm going to ring off. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Vincent, what is the implication for this? Or Jane, maybe you guys decide who's best able to answer that question. We see all of this stuff that, that has been revealed because of this study. What are the implications? We talked a little bit about the court system because of Karen's question and, and Connie coming on board, but what about the education system? What about the health care system? What are the implications of this study? Why don't you let Jane go first? Okay, Jane, <laughs> ladies first here. All right. So um, it's pretty remarkable how long it took for people to grok this new knowledge about human behavior because it really was 
is new knowledge about why we do what we do. And I would say that since about 2008, 9, 10, right around there, there started to be more interest and then more belief. And as the, ACE, the epidemiology of the ACE study and the neurobiology of toxic stress and then the, the impacts, um, there have been hundreds of, of research papers on relating uh, ACEs and skin cancer and ACEs and rheumatoid arthritis. And, you know, it's, it's very clear in the literature that this is, this is real. So there's no doubt that people believe it. And then how it's passed on from generation to generation epigenetically, you know, how it, this actually does change our genes. So, so now uh, that people are believing it, they're beginning to do something with it. Um, there, in education, there are trauma-informed schools um, that when they implement this approach of, uh, as you just said um, a little bit ago, Heather, it's not what's wrong with me, it's what happened to me, or Connie said that, um, uh, and understanding that when kids act out, it's because that's the only language they have, you know, because they haven't been taught any other way, and they don't, they don't know what to do. Um, given the the very um, stressful, um, hurting things that they're experiencing. So when schools understand that and start helping them, uh, these kids' grades go up, their test scores go up, their graduation rates go up. Um, they have hope because they start applying for um, to continue their education after high school. Um, and... The and, and the schools that have done this, they don't have to suspend kids anymore. They don't expel kids anymore. It's it's just remarkable. And I mentioned what happens in courts in the healthcare system. Um, uh, I know that Vincent has been very um, um, unhappy about how long it's taken healthcare to adopt this, especially oh, oh. since he did this in a healthcare setting. <laughs> But I have to yeah. say that finally it's the pediatric community that is leading the charge on this. And there are many pediatricians, I would say into the hundreds now, that are integrating ACEs assessment uh, and resilience assessment in one way or another. Many of them are will ask parents their ACE scores when the parents bring their uh, babies in for a well baby check at four months because they know that's, the, that's a good way for uh, to start implementing prevention right away. And the, the pediatricians that have done this have said that they will never go back to not asking these questions because it's, it's improved the relationship and they can help their, their parents uh, with the kids um, much more than they ever had before. Um, in some early primary care facilities that are implementing this, uh, some pilot programs are seeing a and Vincent, you'll really like this, a 30% drop in ER visits. Um, oh, wow. And, and this is, yeah, and also a um, uh, uh, people who are, and this is in a, in a uh, low-income community, uh, immigrant community, where people have a more difficult time following up on their appointments and more are, are doing that. They're keeping their appointments, which is an indicator that they're engaged in, um, in, in, um, in their improving their health and their family's health. So um, 
almost every sector that you can think of, businesses, um, as I mentioned, uh, uh, the court system, um, faith-based community, there are some pioneers who have said, you know, I've been doing everything wrong, um, and I want to integrate this in a way that will make a difference. Well, you know, when you mention, you know, I've been doing everything wrong, I mean, that sounds like a very healthy approach to this. But i got to tell you, I grew up in a rural community, and what I grew up with, I try to do differently with my children, but what I grew up with is you would have met with huge resistance in that community. If, you know, what happened in the family stayed in the family, and if somebody said, what's going on, Is, is everything okay? Absolutely everything is okay. Have you noticed resistance to this? Well, I think that um, – well, why don't you go ahead, Vincent? You, you know more than I do about that. Resistance is huge. <clears throat> but the interesting thing from from my viewpoint is that, at least in medicine, where where what little has taken place, it has been in rural communities, in Walla Walla, Washington, in one-doctor towns in Maine. I mean, that, that's been, you know, a, a very surprising thing to see. If someone not if you grew up me, in a cornfield, it's not surprising. <laughs> so if, if, if someone were to ask me, but what's happening in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles? That's easy. Nothing. Zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. I, I. And and I suppose, like most things, it will take time for this to trickle down into smaller communities. But meanwhile. You know, there's still that process of trying to educate and try to break, trying to break down that resistance. And good heavens, if it takes us another 20 years, you know, that's just shameful. Um, I actually, I don't think it. I don't think it will. And the reason is, is partly because of um, Aces Connection, which is the social network part of Aces Connection Network. And um, it's been called the Facebook of, of the ACES movement, but it actually has many more bells and whistles. What, what um, people can get there besides information and resources is actually we support ACES initiatives in communities um, in, in a way that helps them move a little faster. So um, I know of about, I would say, there's probably three or 400 now um, ACEs are trauma-informed or resilience-building initiatives in cities and towns and counties across the U.S. and and um, and I think that that will move a lot faster as time goes on. And these initiatives are everywhere. You know, you never know where the pioneers are going to be. You know, who have the light bulb go on when they learn about this this new knowledge and. And so we see it in, as Vincent mentioned, in small towns in Maine and in small towns in Washington State, but also in in inner cities like Chicago and Philadelphia. There's a lot happening there. Um, Los Angeles and San Diego have some pretty good things going. Denver's got quite a bit. So, uh, as well as you know, small towns like Pueblo, Colorado. So. So what we try to do is to find all those folks and get them involved in ACES Connections so that they can share best and worst practices um, uh, and move along faster. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to jump back a little bit because I was so gobsmacked by your comment, Vincent, about um, the physical repercussions of 
of these childhood experiences. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think yeah, that's sure. something so, relatively so new, that connection. There are three ways, three pathways from life experience in childhood to disorder, disease, premature death, etc., in, in adult life. One of them is through various coping mechanisms, overeating leading to obesity, leading to diabetes and other complications, smoking for the psychoactive benefits of nicotine. We all know about the risks of nicotine there 15 or 20 years downstream. The benefits of nicotine have been understood for about a century. Within 15 or 20 seconds of inhalation, nicotine has effective anti-anxiety activity, antidepressant activity, and as American Indians figured out centuries ago, anger suppressant activity. I mean, after all, they were burning tobacco leaves in their ceremonial peace pipe, not moss or oak leaves. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you for a shameful story. I started smoking when I was 11. I would go around and pick up cigarette butts that were left in ashtrays, and and I would smoke them. And you could always get another couple of things off of them. And I smoked until I was in my mid-20s. And so I quit smoking when I was like 24, 25, but I had been smoking for like 15 years. (laughs) And and it has never occurred to me that that was anything other than just adolescent nonsense. I'm going to rethink that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, but I I, mean, re- I remember the cigarettes. I would still if if smoking cigarettes didn't kill you, didn't make you feel bad, didn't you know smell bad, didn't wasn't socially unacceptable. I would smoke tomorrow. I loved smoking. Of 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 course. So so the, the same with alcohol. You know, sit down, have a drink, relax, etc. Mm-hmm. I mentioned you know buying antidepressants on the street called crystal meth. Uh, yes. Etc. So that, so that's one one category that the things that we dismiss as public health risks are indeed that they're socially costly, they're annoying to other people, etc. But from the standpoint of the individual, are very frequently unconsciously attempted solutions to problems that the rest of us know nothing about. This is the big idea. This, this yes, this public health paradox that what is the public health problem is also quite commonly an unconsciously attempted solution on an individual basis to problems that are well concealed. So that's that's one whole category of pathway that the various coping devices that we all automatically put into place have damaging long-term effects. That's fairly easy to understand. <clears throat> More complex is the issue of how chronic major unrelieved stress affects certain areas of the brain by chronic hyperstimulation, causing the release of pro-inflammatory chemicals, causing alterations in the immune system function. These are things that can lead to heart disease, these are things that can lead to cancer, and I'll come back with a story about that, that that your listeners might be interested in. So so this is a far more complicated issue and, de- and depends on relatively recent uh, biomedical uh, discoveries in the past one or two decades. 
Um, and then the third category that Jane mentioned in passing before, epigenetic effects, how, how life experiences can cause changes in gene function, essentially turning a gene on or off as opposed to mutating it, which is a structural change. But these epigenetic changes, again, this is a totally new field of knowledge, maybe 25 years old. These epigenetic changes are transmissible across generations. So those are the three categories. Now, there's a book that many of your listeners might be interested in. You can look it up on Amazon and I think read some samples uh, there as well. Uh, it's, it's written by a woman named Mary Elizabeth Bullock, B-U-L-L-O-C-K, and it's titled Judging Me. This is the most remarkably frank autobiography that I could conceive of. She speaks openly about a heavy-duty childhood sexual abuse by her father, who also used to bring her into saloons at night and sell her to strangers for sex. Somehow, she does not commit suicide. She does not become a mass murderer. She graduates from high school. Somehow, she gets into college, graduates from college. After college, she gets into law school, graduates from law school, and ultimately becomes a United States federal judge. I mean, that's a big deal. Yes. So it would be very easy to say, well, isn't it wonderful to hear, you know, such a hideous childhood story, and this woman is so resilient. And that shows a defect in our concept of resiliency. One of the major researchers in resilience in this country is a woman named Emmy Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R. And on the bottom, I believe it was page 67 of her book, she makes the statement about how surprised they were to discover in amongst their most resilient adults that they had been studying the unexpectedly high level of biomedical disease. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, so going back to, to Judge Bullock, enormously successful person by our conventional standards, which basically use, you know, economic success, academic success, social success as the measuring stick. She has had five different kinds of cancer. Wow. And in addition, has multiple sclerosis, and in addition, has lupus. And in the A study, multiple sclerosis and lupus being in the category of what are called autoimmune diseases, in the A study, we studied 23 different autoimmune diseases and found a clear relationship of underlying A score to 16 of them. So the way this plays out is really quite extraordinary. And the way it plays out emotionally, relatively easy to understand, in terms of disease states, well, if you look at the coping devices that we put into place for emotional relief, that becomes you know, relatively easy to understand. But then the more complex issues of what chronic hyperstimulation of certain areas of the brain produces, and then, as Jane mentioned before, the epigenetic effects, we're looking really at extraordinarily broad, common, and complex 
uh, outcome uh, outcomes of all of this, and the way they play out in terms of emotional state, in terms of social function or malfunction, in terms of biomedical disease, in terms of premature death, is is really quite extraordinary. Uh, about two years ago, we had a paper out from the A study. Um, uh, analyzing the effects uh, on premature death. And at A score 6, there was found to be a 19.7 year, essentially 20 year shortening of life expectancy. So the effects of this is, is the effects are, are really extraordinarily heavy, uh, commonplace, and overwhelmingly unrecognized. Wow. But is there ever a childhood without trauma? Well, <clears throat> yes. Um, well, I say yes. <clears throat> uh, literally without, you know, pr- pr- probably not, but in terms of serious trauma, yes, I, I think so. You know, ch- childhood is stressful, largely because most adults have no idea what's involved in in terms of of bringing up a child in a supportive manner i feel very lucky as a teenager to have spent several summers working on a small dairy farm in upstate new york and having had the chance to see every day how cows raised raised calves uh, which i still find you know an extraordinarily important memory to to harken back to and I would May also I ask say you? that. Go ahead, Jane. I, yeah. I was. I would also say that um, I don't know that there's childhood without stress. I mean, you certainly need stress. Um, maybe you don't need toxic stress, but how it's dealt with, I think, is important. Um, if, if, um, say, a child does uh, experience bullying and um, in school and has a very supportive home life and parent uh, parent or parents who go to the school and say, let's figure out how not to have that happen again and and develop some systems here or, you know, anyway, step in and help the child. Um, that makes a difference to that kid. Um, it's, it's the, it's the, it's that, that mix of, you know, how much trauma you're experiencing versus how many resilience factors and how much uh, help you're getting as you're going through this. And, um, you know, certainly some people come out of it better than others, and I think the, where the frontier of this, of this new science is going is to figure out, well, um, what, what does, what are the, resilience factors, which I think, you know, some, some, there's been some really good research done on that for individuals, and we're just beginning to figure out what it is for organizations and systems, um, and, and how do we make sure that they're embedded in how we raise children so that, you know, so that, you know, we do what, what Vincent just talked about, and we, you know, take care of our, our children the way that cows take care of their calves, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go back and look. I'm going to go back and visit the farm. <laughs> a little late for me, though. My kids are growing. Well, I, 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 I think Jane's answer is is really terrific, and it raises the question: Well, 
how does one transmit that information to literally tens of millions of people? Yeah. I mean, things like home visitation programs and, and nurse family partnerships and so forth are marvelously effective and important, but they nibble at the edges of the problem. And the question then comes up, well, does one attempt to deal with this after the fact, or does one try to spend time figuring out how to bring about primary prevention, keeping these things from happening in the first place? And if the latter is the goal, and it ultimately realistically needs to be, if the latter is the goal, then the question, how, how do you do this for tens of millions of people? Especially in view of the fact that what we, I, I, I always say that we try to parent the way we wanted to be parented. Mm-hmm. But if all we saw was the way we were parented, mm-hmm. we're really doing it with one hand tied behind our backs. Mm-hmm. No question. So and, how... And, and yeah. from, from what we saw in the obesity program, the tool that strikes me as a way of effecting this would be theater, depiction, storytelling, not writing books, not you know teaching people, etc., but basically storytelling, television, radio, perhaps the internet. Yeah. You know what what this looks like. What does supportive parenting look like? Yeah. I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by the Huxtables. I wanted to live in that family so much. Remember that show on TV? The Bill Cosby I, I, show? Yes. No. Well, you know, we, I mean, we don't have to go down Bill Cosby's road, but that that television show, <laughs> you know, I wanted them to be my parents so badly. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, they, they were, like, perfect. They never did anything horrible, and and, and I just I just wanted the Huxtables. So... <laughs> <laughs> the Huxtables became my parenting manual. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I have had for some time the thought in my mind, you know, what if one were to create a serial television program, soap opera, if you will, that had woven into the storyline illustrations of what supportive parenting looks like and how it plays out way downstream, contrasting that with illustrations of destructive parenting and how that plays out downstream. I think that as a parent, I mean, I can count so many things that I did wrong. Um, I can count a few or few less that I think I did really right. Um, but I was really going blind. I was just doing it, you know, just every day, every action, trying to figure out whether that was the right thing to do. Yeah. And I'm well educated. I, you know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I had resources, I had access to knowledge, and yet it was still such a struggle to figure out. How do you do this? You know, uh, it, it, it's a difficult, difficult thing. I'm looking at the clock. Um, uh, Jane, Vincent, uh, we have like five minutes left. And what what are some resources? If somebody wants to learn more about the ACE study, if they want to learn more about some of these things that we talked about, the uh, epigenetic effects of um, trauma, et cetera, where, what are some resources for people to go to? Jane, do you want to go first? Sure. So there's a wonderful book called Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biology Becomes Your Biography and How You Can Heal. 
by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. And I know that she interviewed uh, Vincent for that, but um, she's a science writer who weaves the science into um, stories of, I think she followed 13 people um, who had high A scores and, and how that played out in their health. So okay. that's a it's a really, really good uh, resource. Um, I'm looking forward to reading the book Judging Me. Uh, I hadn't heard about that one before, Vincent, so that's really good. There's also another one by Robin Carr Morse, uh, who also interviewed Vincent, um, called uh, Scared Sick, mm-hmm. uh, which was written a few years ago. Donna's book just came out. I think it was last year. Um, and... Um, and I'm working on a book that is is uh, will go into cover a little bit of the same territory. But my um, my long term goal is to actually see how this changes um, organization, organizations and agencies and systems. You know, this is integrated yeah. into who we are. So and taking some of the pioneering work, highlighting some of the pioneering work that's been happening in, in all these different sectors. Um, ACES Connection Network is a really good place to lear- start learning about this. ACES Too High, which is the first of the two parts of that network, is a, a new site for the general public. Um, but there you can go to the tab called ACES Science 101 to get an overview and a tab called Got Your A Score to do your ACE and your resilience score. And if um, people get really um, interested and want to do something in their communities, they can go to ACES Connection, which is a social network, and it's free to join. There are about 14,000 people on there now. And um, and that is, uh, you'll get a, a daily digest of information about what's happening in ACES science and how people are implementing it and also be able to see what's happening in various communities around the country and, and start an ACES group in your own community if there isn't one or join one if there already is. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. Vincent, Dr. Folletti, what what would you like to leave us with? Yeah, I, I think two, two simple things. One would be to uh, search on the Internet the term ACE study, uh, put quotes on both sides so that you search for the term, not not ACE or study individually. There's an amazing amount of information uh, that you can look at on the Internet. And then the same thing with YouTube. Uh, there's a quite surprising amount of information there as well. But my greatest uh, uh, expectation is uh, for Jane's book when it comes out, because Jane is a remarkably <laughs> Aging writer, uh, yeah. and I wish she'd <laughs> just finish <laughs> yeah, get on get the, it out on the market. The book. <laughs> yeah. I will. That's, I will. I will. The, that's the problem with writing a book. It just seems to take forever, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, their postcards harass her. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I have her phone number now. I can join you. <laughs> Thank you so very much 
for joining us on the show, for giving us just a little, little, little bit of, uh, of information about what this comprehensive study has revealed. And I thank you so much for joining us. I, I really, I hope we can do this again somewhere down the road. I, uh, I know your schedules are very full, but I would, I, I've been jotting notes here saying resilience. We have to do a show on resilience and coping. You know, we have to do. So, you know, I mean, I've been jotting notes. The same baby's co- uh, courthouse. I mean, there's a million shows you've told me about, and, and I really appreciate that, and I can't wait to start lining some of those up. Thank you. One of the things that I do uh, when we end our show is to end it with a quote, and there were so many quotes that I could have chosen from, but I picked one by a gentleman. I have no clue who he is other than he wrote a book. Kilroy J. Oldster, I have to believe that's a pseudonym. Childhood introduces children to the wounds of the world. Let's make sure they're not wounded permanently. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.